the American suburbs aren't all white anymore. There's a race at the top between Asian Americans and white kids. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Aside from just not getting shot in school, the overriding concern shared by virtually all parents for their young students is for their kids to get ahead, to be accepted by the best colleges and university. Now, our suburbs used to be pretty much all white. They were uh, single-family homes and developed in part to leave behind urban neighborhoods of color. And it's always understood to be a race to the top, but now, with the prominence of Asian-American kids excelling in our suburban schools, it's become a race at the top. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Professor of Sociology at Tufts University, Natasha Waraku. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's great to be here. Your new book is titled Race at the Top, Asian-Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream, in uh, suburban schools. Natasha Warko, as I said, is professor of sociology at Tufts, a former Guggenheim fellow and high school teacher. Yay for that. Warko is an expert on racial and ethnic inequality in education. She's the author of two other books, most recently The Diversity Bargain, and writes and speaks frequently for public audiences and venues such as The New York Times, Bloomberg, MSNBC, NPR, and the BBC and marketplace. Well, again, thanks for being with us. The the suburban high school that you write about sounds really familiar. Tell us about the it's because I went to one. Tell us about the made-up school Woodcrest High. What inspired you to put your focus there? What, what what is the need that your book tries to address about Woodcrest High, the imaginary? Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to really, I, I was thinking a lot about achievement and, you know, in, in um, inequality, I've, I've, in the last decade or so, I've really started thinking about inequality in terms of um, advantage and how does advantage kind of fuel inequality. Um, and I, uh, the other thing I noticed was a, uh, the kind of increasing Asian American population in the United States, um, Asian Americans, uh, the, the Asian American population has nearly doubled in the last two decades. And with that, because of U.S. immigration policy that kind of favors highly skilled migration from Asia, we see Asian American youth um, doing quite well academically. So, you know, and that's in part because their parents are coming from, you know, high levels of education and they themselves then um, are benefiting from that. And I wanted to kind of understand how does this play out um, at the local level, right? So we have a large and growing Asian American population and, um uh, high levels of academic achievement, um, and in some instances outperforming even, you know, the, what we think of as the dominant group, whites, right. and what happens. And that's kind of what led me, you know, there, there are towns like this all around the country, and it led me to one of them on the East Coast that I call Woodcrest. Ah, so this is a real town. Oh, that's good to know. 
and I, I tell you, yeah. this, but there are so many of them. And and who who is the target audience? Do you think who would uh, be interested in, in getting this knowledge, and who would it be be helpful for? Governmental, educational ed- agencies, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think anyone interested in um, both kind of increasing diversity in kind of affluent communities, anyone interested in, you know, racial equity, interested in, um, you know, how this kind of our how even housing, I think part of the story that I tell is the way that, you know, these communities, affluent suburbs were are sort of separated from, you know, really ordinary Americans, middle income, low income, and that creates this sort of culture that I think can be problematic in terms of inequality and the belief that, you know, somehow people who are in these communities are supposedly, you know, more deserving or smarter or somehow, you know, better better accomplished than those from other communities. Well, that, that can, uh, you know, when one... Lumps groups together, that can be problematic, of course, and, and your book uh, looks into that. And, uh, you know, it's true, every ambitious kid or parent wants to address whatever stands in the way of achievement as they try to gain acceptance in the colleges of their choice. Were you able to pick up on different approaches to a challenging meritocracy taken by white and Asian American families? Tell us, please, about those divergent approaches. Sure. So, you know, the premise that I always start with in in all of my work, whether it's as, you know, a professor or working with school districts or um, in my research, is that really, you know, all parents want the best for their children and will do whatever they can, whatever is in their capacity, whatever their resources to help their children get ahead. And today, you know... um, Almost all parents want their children to go to college and, like, as good a college they can go to that they can afford. Um, And, again, you know, there's survey data that shows that that is pretty universal today in the United States. But we have different approaches. We have different resources and different approaches to that. So, you know, in a town like Woodcrest, parents have pretty significant economic resources. That's how they can afford to live in this town. Um, And um, most of them have college degrees, whether they're from the United States or if they're immigrants from abroad. Um, And so they have some cultural know-how. But, you know, when when I was in this town, what I realized was that Um, the kind of white parents who are mostly U.S. born grew up in an education system in which, you know, for college admissions is much more holistic, right? To get ahead, you don't just need strong academics. You also need extracurriculars, and that becomes a big focus. Whereas in Asia, you know, the the parents, most of the um, Asian, Asian parents in this community were Indian immigrants or Chinese immigrants. And they, again, did well academically. That's how they ended up in the United States and in this town through highly skilled visas. And their education systems, you know, to get ahead, you focus on, it's, it's all about academics right. and academic testing, right? right? And so they have, they bring those skills and that kind of strategy for getting ahead to the United States. So they tend to focus much more on academics, um, in part because that's what they know, right? So getting their kids to take, you know, as many advanced classes as they think they can handle, um, you know, asking their children to drop extracurriculars if they are getting in the way of being able to do a lot of academic, you know, rigorous academic work, um, asking the school to have, you know, intramural sports that are more kind of casual uh-huh. so that their kids can participate but don't have to do, you know, 
to have the full commitment of like varsity sports, which, you know, often their kids couldn't get onto the varsity team in the first place, but that it was a, you know, a way of getting exercise and socializing, but not this kind of intensive commitment. Whereas the white parents were uh, talked a lot, used the word balance a lot. And, you know, some of them said, well, you know, I, I only, we only allow our kids to take one AP class per year because we want to make sure they have time for their theater or for their, you know, we know that they're going to be playing varsity sports every semester. Um, And so they had, they had a kind of slightly different approach. It's not that they didn't care about academics. They did, but they wanted, they, they didn't think it was academics at all costs. And what about the colleges? As you say in the beginning, you know, the white traditional people have thought that colleges like that balance. And how have they reacted to this two different pressures on them? Yeah. You know, well, they're sort of, you know, the college admissions process is one that, you know, as most listeners will know, is in the United States is holistic, right? So colleges are looking at, of course, your academics, but also, you know, are you a star, you know, baseball pitcher and the senior on the base on the baseball pitcher on the baseball team is graduating this year and so you're getting recruited or you know does the orchestra this year need a, a bassoon and you know you play the bassoon and so um it's it, they're looking much more holistically particularly very uh, selective still. interesting right. so the, the the academic yeah. focus uh isn't necessarily uh overriding the the so-called holistic focus the balance focused in terms of how colleges you take know, it I think part of it is that, again, when we're talking about these very selective colleges, you know, that say, you know, top 50 colleges that students in this kind of place, places like this really want to go to, they have, they kind of have their pick. And there are so many high achievers Mm -hmm. that there are so many more high achievers than there is space. So then they are, they are looking at, you know, okay, you're in the pool because you have a high GPA, but um, they need to distinguish between, you know, out of every 10 students with a high GPA, they can only take, you know, two say. And so then it becomes, well, the coach wants this player or um, this person, you know, has this, uh, has demonstrated leadership in this way, or they have other sort of qualities that they, that the college deems um, useful for their cohort. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an important part of democracy, and that's education, fairness in education, and, and where the focus should be. Our guest today is Tufts University uh, professor and author Natasha Waraku, whose new book is titled Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. And of course, SATs, standardized tests, have long been there, and many have challenged the validity of SAT results, and and critics have questioned the selection criteria of uh, prestigious exam schools. Though these concerns are finally receiving more attention. I mean, I've, I've never liked the SATs. You doubt, you doubt their motivations. Tell us about that, please. Well, I think it's complicated. You know, I think the the questioning of standardized testing is a good thing. You know, the history of standardized testing is tied up with the history of the eugenics movement. They, we know that the um, the outcomes of testing are racially unequal, unequal by class. And so, let me just start by saying that I know I I I think this is a good thing, and I also think that you know when I look at um, uh, 
racial justice activists um, fighting for educational access, particularly for African-American youth. Um, they have been arguing for decades that educational testing is problematic. Um, But, you know, there was very little movement. And so, you know, one of the things I I have pointed out is that I also don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, at a time when suddenly Asian Americans are catapulting ahead of whites in these educational tests, you know, Asian American SAT scores on average are the average for Asian Americans is higher than the average for whites. You know, when we look at the admissions, as you mentioned, to these exams, high schools, Asian Americans are, um, you know, occupying large numbers of seats um, at these schools. I also don't think that's a coincidence, right? I think we tend to sort of notice things when it benefits us, right? And I think that's what we're seeing. And so, you know, let me be clear. I think it's a good, you know, that's great that, like, finally those in power are paying attention, are trying to do something about it and making those changes. Um, But I think we need to do it in a way that brings, that also brings Asian Americans along and so that you don't have Asian Americans protesting and saying, hey, wait, wait a minute, like, just as we're sort of figuring out the system, now you're going to, like, change it. That's, you know, and there are some claims that, oh, that's racist, right? And I don't think that it is. Um, but I think that we need to need to make sure that we are clear on why we're doing what we're doing and um, the the equity um, that it will that it will create. Well, I'll tell you, in my opinion, the focus on, on racial equity, my Goodness, it's been a long time coming. It's going to still be yeah. a while. It's hard to figure out <clears throat> what what is discriminatory, what is, is racist. People are very sensitive about that. And yay, it's about time. It's very difficult to determine. You know, in these suburbs, as you point out, Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate, were they, they were everywhere. The signs were everywhere. And white parents were appropriately expressing appreciation for diversity. But... You argue that the alignment of the white parents' educational worries with race may be actually kind of still there. Please say more. Yeah, well, you know, I think that... um I don't think that, you know, I do think that this is a very liberal town. I think people have very good intentions. Um, but I think there was an underlying kind of, it was like a resentment or a kind of judgment of Asian parenting when Asian kids were kind of doing well. And so there was a sense of like, well, you know, um, the Asian kids might be doing better, but that's bad parenting, you know, yeah. or the kind of stere- invoking stereotypes of the kind of tiger mom, right? That the parents are right, pressuring their right. kids or yeah. that those kids are all so stressed out and, you know, those kids are ruining the, you know, stressing. So first it becomes that parenting is bad for those kids. And then it becomes those, that parenting is bad for my kids. Cause suddenly my kid, you know, can't get into honors because yeah. their kids are doing so well. And, and then my kid doesn't, you know, isn't in the class that they supposedly deserve. Right. And so there is this kind of slight resentment, I think that kind of turns into judgment that, um, and again, it's not all parents, but it was a significant number. Um, who I, you know, just felt a sense of unease of losing mm-hmm. their position at the, at the top of the status hierarchy. And the response being, well, they're doing things differently, and that's wrong. They're doing it the wrong <laughs> way. <laughs> okay, they're doing it differently, therefore it's wrong. Okay. That, yeah, well, I, can, I, I can sense that, that there's a, you know, there, there is a judgment in it and, and what the right thing is. But it's still, again... Isn't it not up? Isn't it still up to the colleges? They still want not just academic kids. So that perhaps should reassure some of the white parents who haven't quite gotten there. 
Yeah. Well, that's why I call the book A Race at the Top, because, you know, Almost everyone in this community is doing well. Eighty um, percent of kids are going to us are going on to a selective college um, in the United States. When we, you know, we realize five percent of colleges are actually selective colleges, right? Most colleges in the country are open access, um, you know, community colleges. So they are all doing great, um, and so this. Um, I don't think they need to worry. And I, you know, I'll just say something about the college admissions thing. Is that you know when mm-hmm. I. Um, when I started, when when before, you know, I, I'm sure you know that there is this trial that is going going to be heard in the U.S. Supreme Court um, in the fall, where uh, Asian American groups are suing um, for supposed racial discrimination, and they want to end affirmative action. Now, this, of course, whole thing was financed by a white kind right. of anti-racial justice activist, but um, this idea, I think, before this case, I did wonder, like, well, why is it that, you know, Harvard is all, it, the, the average SAT score of students, if Asian Americans admitted, is higher than the average SAT score of white students admitted? Um, are they discriminating? Do they have quotas? And what I realized is that um, it's it's not necessarily discrimination. It's just the, the criteria that they use um, does favor whites over others. And I don't think it's intentional, but I think, you know, so I think it's up to, you know, the individual to decide, do you think that's a good thing? Like things like, you know, wanting representation from every state. Well, all people of color tend to live on the coast, like wanting a diversity of intended majors. Right. Um, otherwise, you don't have anybody in your English classes or English majors. Um, and those tend to be white students. Um, <clears throat> athletic recruiting. So these kinds of, that tends to favor white students over, again, all students of color. And so um I don't think these are intentionally discriminatory. Um, you know, are they are they good policy? I don't know, um, but I do know that they're they're part of the explanation for these differences. Um, and so, you know, again, I think college admissions is so complicated. We tend to think of it. We tend to assume that it's about individual merit, right? They're selecting the best students possible, and we have to figure out what's the best way of doing that. But that's not really what they're doing. Colleges are organizations trying to, you know, satisfy organizational needs, right? And different constituencies want different things. The alums want to make sure that their children get a leg up. The development office wants to make sure you keep the donors happy. And, you know, obviously (laughs) the, the... you have to balance the budget. You only have a certain number of financial aid dollars. And after that, you have to be need aware that the way a lot of um, colleges are. And so, you know, it isn't this like individual, like best of the best, the way we kind of often think of it. Um, It's really just a, you know, I think we need to stop thinking of college admissions in that way. Well, the whole idea of uh, affirmative action, you know, it seems like it's largely been fair. I mean, we have to address these uh, inequities and, and decisions about different races. Uh, so, you know, interesting that that suit that you mentioned before the Supreme Court using that name. Oh, boy, that's, yeah, it's pretty transparent. It's You can see what they're doing there. But And one thing I wonder about yeah. that, that's going on these days, unfortunately, is school boards across the country have uh, had some difficult times. They've been uh, attacked by right-wing groups threatening the school boards not to teach history or any controversial political or social topic. I wonder, how has that gone in, in Woodcrest? Are they afraid of has it? It hasn't happened there, has it? I mean, did, did that, what's your sense of that kind of threat? 
So, so far, there hasn't been um, those kinds of threats in this community. Um, I think in part because it is um, a very liberal identified town. Right. Um, there haven't been state, state, no state law has been passed that, you know, the way that there, there has been in, in some places um, about what you can and can't talk about in terms of racial equity. I think this is a huge problem. And I think this is, you know, this is sort of the next, I think the, the right has been very focused and like deliberate about this, again, anti-racial justice agenda, um, starting with the attack on affirmative action. And, you know, now they are attacking um, uh, even race neutral policies. You know, this Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia went from test-based admissions to um, holistic admissions and, you know, without thinking of talking about race at all. And they, they're attacking that saying that was, you know, your intent was to diversify and be more inclusive. And that is racial discrimination towards whites and Asians. And so, you know, and they're systematically attacking. All, and then now the curriculum and what you can right. and can't say. And I think it's incredibly problematic. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I also am hopeful that there there are other, you know, Illinois, the state of Illinois, not like the most liberal state in the country, but you know, not the most conservative either, but passed, um, you know, a, a law last year to include Asian American history in, um, in the curriculum. And so, um, you know, I think that there, there is a growing attention to also racial justice in the curriculum here in Massachusetts. We also have a bill, um, that, um, that is trying to increase, uh, attention to racial justice in, in, in schools. So I think, you know, the right is very organized. I think right. <laughs> needs to get organized and, and, um, encounter these, these, um, these, it's almost like a misinformation campaign. I mean, to tell teachers that you can't talk about race in a country with the history that we have is kind of outrageous. Kind of. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's pretty outrageous. And if you think about, you know, the history of, Various different uh, groups of immigrants in these uh, United States. Uh, on the West Coast, there's been a little bit of a uh, challenge and uh, lack of support, shall we say, for Asian immigrants through the years. And perhaps it might be good for the kids to learn that environment. Just my opinion. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, really? Oh, uh, you know, all, well, probably, and there's a lot of stuff. It's, it, was, it was ugly. It's an important that we learn about it. It really is. Anyway, uh, Summer vacation. No educational feature underscores more dramatically the different cultural differences of white and Asian Americans during the two months school is out of session. What, 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 tell us about what they do during the summer vacation, what any kind of cultural differences there may be. Yeah, you know, well, first of all, let me just say, there is a lot of variation in these groups. It's not like all the white kids are doing yes, one thing and all the Asian kids absolutely. are doing anything by any stretch of the imagination, right? There's a lot of diversity, but there are patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to point that out. There, the, the, the pat- but the, and the patterns, I think, are telling. And so um, one of the things I found was that the Asian American students were, much, were more likely to be doing kind of academic activities. So I focused on high school students. And so, you know, some of them were taking... Um, you know, these, these kind of college prep classes, um, you know, sometimes they're like on a college campus or, um, they, they were, you know, I think a few of them were like working in a lab or, um, they're just kind of more, tended to do more, slightly more academic type activities. Whereas the, the white students were, uh, that was less so. And when I talked to parents also, there was a sort of, again, I think a slight, like, 
judgment of, you know, mm-hmm. summer vacation is supposed to be for fun and like personal growth, you know, go get a job at the ice cream store or, you know, work as a lifeguard at the pool, um, learn how to work with other kids, you know, your social development, go away to, you know, an outdoor summer camp, these kinds of things. And again, I think, you know, it, this part, it's like a cultural context, right? Again, if you're in Asia and like, what you get on that test is going to determine where you can go to college. It's going to determine the kind of job you can get. Like that's where you're going to focus. That's where you're going to focus. <laughs> your spare time. Whereas in the U S that pressure is not there in the same way. True. And it, it perhaps provides room to do other things and to think about other things. Um, yeah. The pressure and- in the United States, all different areas. You were about to say something. Go ahead. Well, I think it's also important to point out, you know, there's this this great book by Doug Downey, which is called How Schools Matter, which shows basically that inequality and educational outcomes grows the most um, outside of school. So during summer vacation, summer slide is really a big, big driver of educational inequality and outcomes Mm -hmm. when we look at, um, you know, working class families versus middle class families by race as well. And so, um, you know, what happens in the summer really matters. Um, But, you know, I think in in affluent communities, kids are already doing well academic and not well enough academically. And it's like, what else can we add on to that? You know, um, other enrichment. And, you know, they're all doing enrichment. They're just doing different kinds of enrichment. Yeah, different kinds of enrichment. And you talked about summer slide and that made me sort of think about the uh, uh, imposed slide of COVID and how that affected uh, yeah. students. And I, I wonder, I, I don't know how recently your book was, was completed, but uh, if there's different ways of dealing with how COVID, I mean, it's it's hurt a lot of kids, yeah. Yeah, really, from what I yeah, can tell. What's your absolutely. sense of, is there differences there? Absolutely. So, um, so the research and everything in the book was pre-COVID, um, but we did do some follow-up interviews with families um, after everything shut down. Um, and I will say that, you know, kind of paralleling what I found in my research, the, the, the white parents tended to be a lot more concerned about um, social emotional well-being um, and we see this in some of the um, data um, outside of Woodcrest as well that, you know, Asian-American Asian families, I think, you know, partly I think Chinese immigrants uh, were, you know, had, you know, had this his, his experience with um, pandemics, um, SARS, and were more cautious, mm. less likely to send their children to in-person learning. Um, white upper middle class families really wanted their kids to be in school in person because they felt that that was important for their kind of um social emotional development. And I, and I saw that in Woodcrest as well. Um, but I, I do think that in communities like this, kids are, you know, I think they're, I think the mental health crisis is just exacerbated, exacerbated. There were concerns, big concerns about mental health in this community. And, you know, we forget that there was a mental health crisis prior to the pandemic um, among youth. And now it's just really, it been exacerbated so much more. Um, and so, but I do think that, you know, in some ways, um, having kind of economic security does shield um, kids or at least, you know, that's part of they don't they don't have the most of most families in this community. Not all, but most don't have like concerns about food insecurity, about um, housing that, you know, we see in other communities. Yeah, that's for sure, too. And I don't know what kind of freedom there really is if you don't have economic uh, security, I, yeah. I, I must say. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, and 
your book is titled uh, Race at the Top. How is there like real like racial sense of competition between white and Asian parents within a school? You know, in in, in this community, at least, um, it was not overt for sure. Right. No one ever talked specific, I mean, that's not true. Some people did. Most people didn't talk about things in, in racial terms. So, again, some people did, but it would, it would, it, there was definitely this sense of, you know, um, you know, parents saying things like, well, you know, it's great. I love the diversity and it's, you know, it's, I, I, that's one of the things that I love about this town, but as it's gone grown more diverse, there are serious implications, right, for the culture at school, for, you know, competition at the school. Now, a lot of upper middle class suburbs in this country um, are, you know, there are concerns about competition and student stress related right, to that right, and higher sure. and higher levels of achievement. But it can get racialized when, when that is happening alongside ethnic change. Um, and so, you know, there is this sense of like our community is changing, it's becoming, you know, more, more competitive. And then there's this kind of attribution that, oh, well, that's because of the ethnic change. And there's always a question of how much c culture, the culture of their parents and grandparents, kids bring to a current suburban, you know, relatively well-off school. It, it used to say when I was growing up that there was a melting pot in the United States. I don't see that as much mm -hmm. as uh, – and, you know, in terms of, like, for example, what, what the high school students listen to, what their music is, I don't know. I mean, how, how, is there a difference that way, or, or does it largely blend in? What's your sense? Yeah, you know, one of the other – the other big reason I wanted to study this community was because, you know, I, I study – have always studied immigration. I'm a child of immigrants myself. Yes. And so, you know, the kind of old story that we hear, and even, like, scholars talk about this, was this story, this idea of assimilation, right? That over generations, right, right. Um, immigrants to their children their grandchildren move from the city to kind of the inner ring suburbs to the outer ring suburbs, and then they eventually blend into the kind of, you know, to whiteness. The dominant group, right? That's what Eastern Europeans did, Southern Europeans, um, Jewish Americans, Catholic Americans, and then it becomes, you know, this sort of um, being part of the dominant group. And the question for many years has been, you know, there's a great book that was written 20 years ago, are Asian Americans um, forever foreigners or honorary whites? Because, of course, we are racial minorities. Right. Um, the U.S. has changed. Uh, we're much more kind of diverse and, you know, embrace that diversity in many ways. Um, so I was interested in, okay, here's a suburb, um, affluent, the Asian Americans have kind of, these Asian Americans at least have quote unquote made it right. Doing well economically, like what happens? But what I found was that actually, um, they have their own way of getting ahead. It's kind of working. Their kids are doing great. And so there's no real need to sort of do things the way their white neighbors are doing them. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, then the other possibility is, well, maybe whites would copy the Asians. Like, oh, their kids are doing really well academically. Maybe we should do what they're doing. And I didn't see evidence of that either, right? right? There was a sort of pushback. And so I think that there is room in, in communities like this, and I think in the contemporary United States, for different different ways of getting ahead, different foci for parents. Um, yes. And um, I think the goal is really just to find ways to make room for, for all of it, right, um, and support kids and, you know, who they want to be um, rather than, you know, spend 
energy judging, like what's the best way or the right way. I don't think there's one best way. Yeah, it's always a mix of what, how much culture you bring with you and how much, you know, you yeah. reject. And, you know, I'm a child of uh, second-generation immigrants and uh, you know, okay. carry some stuff forward, uh, Jewish immigrants yeah. from uh, Lithuania area. Yep. You are the mother of young children, I believe, and a daughter of Indian parents. How, how did the research that you did, or did it impact your own thoughts about parenting and education? So, yeah, it's funny because I have this moment in the book where I talk about how, you know, I would um, go on this research trip and talk to people and I'd come home and suddenly feel like maybe I'm maybe my kids are not doing enough. Maybe I need to sign them up for, you know, these extra math classes or I would look them up and then I'd be like, oh, my gosh, there's no way I'm going to be able to convince them. I don't even, you know, and so I think what it that perspective brought me, I think. Having, I was born in the United States and grew up, you know, obviously went to school here. Mm-hmm. And so I think I have, I had a kind of, I think my, that perspective was helpful. Like I kind of thought, I mean, my parents are of a different generation and these parents are closer to my age. But I think in terms of like coming from that world, you know, I think I, I empathized with the um, immigrant parents um, a lot. And I also empathized with the white parents because I think, you know, I, I often wondered, like, well, if I lived in this town, like, I would be, you know, concerned about all of this competition and, you know, as well. And so I kind of saw that they're, you know, they all have good intentions. They're all sort of, you know, doing the best they can. as We all do the best we can as parents. Um and there was no malintent there. Um, and, and so it's, it's just this this incredible. And I think that that sort of helped me. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, because I study education and educational equity, I sure. also understand that, you know, my kids are going to be OK. They have two uh-huh. well-educated parents. Um, you know, they um, they are economically secure. You know, I'm so lucky to have the job I do. And so they, I, I think I, I understand that all of those things are setting them up for, um, you know, whatever success means for a comfortable life, mm. a, a decent life in the future. And, you know, everything else is like, you know, around the edges, right. Or they can go to this college or that college, but you know, the research suggests that it doesn't, matter that much if you already have, um, you know, if you're not, if you already have, you know, they already have connections to, you know, Thomas faculty because that's where I work or, you know, um, but, you know, my partner is like social networks and his work um, connections. And so I think um, in some ways it makes me, re- I, I think the research in general in education helps me relax a little as a parent. I hope. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my kids how relaxed I am as a well, parent. I, I tend to relax when uh, professionals that are, you know, doctors or whatever, when they, they know what they're doing, you know, and they do the research, and I don't have to do that. They do. Just in case you tuned in, uh, Bert Cohen here. Uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Natasha Waraku, who has a new book out, Race at the Top. Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. And she is a professor of sociology at uh, Tufts University, where I'm very pleased that my niece just recently got in. And I think she's white, imagine. Uh, and I'm only, you know, one has to be careful when even joking with such things. It's true. But uh, the schools that there are make their judgments on lots and lots and lots of different things. Hopefully, they're not doing, uh, you know, uh, 
they have uh, they can have a certain number of say Jewish students or a certain number of Asian students. I know they used to, they, the colleges used to do that, but I don't think they do that anymore. I don't. I mean, some would charge that at that uh, affirmative action does that, but I I don't think so. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, you know, any quota on any group, yeah. uh, particularly a racial group, is illegal. Yeah. Um, you know, these are protected categories. Um, so we know that racial quotas, even for minority groups, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, you know, affirmative action can't can't be um, practiced as a quota. Um, you also can't have limits on, um, you know, Asian Americans, Jewish Americans, right. etc. And so, um, and, you know, that's, that's not what they're doing. Um, but there is, um, you know, I think this idea that increasing access for underrepresented groups, mm-hmm. Native American mm-hmm. students, black students, Latinx students, um, to suggest that that is, you know, necessarily taking away from Asian Americans is to suggest that, okay, whites have a certain number of seats, <laughs> whatever you, and then all the people of color are fighting for everything else. That's not how it works, mm-hmm. right? I think, you know, just as, um, I think just as whites, um, you know, and of course it's a zero-sum game, there are only certain numbers thoughts, but just as whites, you know, need to make room for inclusion of underrepresented minorities, so too do Asian Americans. And I think that is an important, um, it's important to recognize all of the advantages. You know, again, Asian Americans are incredibly diverse, as are whites, right, as right. are black Americans, right. as are Latinx, but um, as a group um, have done well um, academically, particularly those who are the children of highly skilled immigrants. Um, and we have to recognize the history of racial exclusion in this country. And I think when you do that, it's hard not to support affirmative practices like affirmative action um, because it's not about like, you know, um, whether or not Asian Americans experience racial discrimination. Of course, we experience different kinds of racial discrimination, but in education, we've had pretty solid access to education. Um, you know, Asian Americans, the way the, all of communities like Woodcrest were designed to keep working class people out, particularly yes, African Americans, yes. right? It, they were designed as places Mostly. for whites to leave the city right. um, at a time of school integration. Right. But, you know, in the contemporary period, Asian Americans are able to sort of take advantage of that and benefit from that class exclusion, right? So they're not excluded from those places. Um, and these places have been able to develop these school systems because they're not having to um, address economic insecurity right. on the same scale as urban schools have. And Asian Americans are able to take advantage of that. And we have to recognize that um, that that is a that is a benefit, and it's a benefit on the backs of you know African Americans, um, and that's part of the history of this country. And so I think you know, when, when you recognize that, it's hard not to support affirmative action, in and, my view. And, and for my part, if you think about what uh, the white settlers in general have done to uh, the black people, indigenous people, people all around the world, the idea of reparations, you know, maybe yeah. people think it's a little bit, not, I think it's a good idea. I think we kind of owe a lot of people a lot of reparations, yeah. to be perfectly honest. Well, when, you know, the, the Woodcrest School Board and has to be uh, subtle and careful, of course, because it is such a, a, a mixed ethnic community. So the school board and the high school faculty ultimately agreed with a critique uh, that I, I believe the district's parents, uh, white parents, brought and took a number of steps in an attempt to address the so-called ratcheted up of the academic stress on students. Uh, tell us about the dynamics of what you call a manufactured moral crisis on this. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think um, so. So parents, again, this was pre-pandemic. Parents were already very concerned about their children's emotional well-being. Yes. Um, and they, you know, recognized their kids were very scheduled, had a lot going on, and some kids were stressed. And I think, you know, the... When I look at the data, there's, there's, the numbers were similar to national data. So I don't think it's, it was unique to this community or communities like it. But, you know, kids everywhere, already there were a lot of mental health concerns. Again, pre-pandemic, now it's even more. Um, but I think um, what parents thought was the cause and what the district, the town should do about it, was different, right? So, um, and I think what parents wanted to be done, I think was aligned with helping their kids get ahead. So, right. you know, the white parents thought, um, you know, it's all of this academic stress. And so there was a new policy to reduce homework, um, to limit how much homework teachers could give. They ended homework in the elementary schools as a way of kind of reducing stress. And because, you know, and I remember going to one of these school board meetings and uh, about this policy and this young woman got up who was a high school student um, and talked about how, you know, well, I have school, then I have this activity, then I have this sport, and then, and then I get home at nine o'clock, I have to eat dinner and then do my homework. And so, you know, please, can you reduce our homework? And it was interesting that, like, mm-hmm. there was never any talk of like, well, maybe that's too much. Maybe she should quit one of those activities or, you know, maybe we should limit um, how many hours a week sports is allowed, varsity sports should be allowed to require students to be on the field or, you know, committed. Mm-hmm. But that was never on the table. And so I, I think that's an interesting, interesting right. um, dif- difference. And that really didn't come up. But, you know, Asian parents did say, like, I don't understand why they did this. And I would say, well, you know, mm-hmm. not as a critique, but just, so oh, did you ever bring that up? Or did you ever talk to anybody mm-hmm. on the school board or, or go to a meeting? And they were like, no, they almost uh, seemed guilty. And I was like, mm-hmm. I you know, but, I, but there's, you know, there's a different cultural, like, you know, you don't get involved in the school board. There's no such thing as the school board in, in most of these Indian and Chinese schools that they were going to. Whereas in the U S there's that expectation and that, you know, this feeling of like, they need to respond to me as a parent, right? Uh-huh. You're much, there's much more sense of agency. Also, when you're an immigrant, you don't have that same sense of like, I can go and say what I think and express disagreement. <laughs> and of course, some Asian parents did, but it wasn't as common. And so there was this like, then they were like, well, you know, when my kid was in elementary school, there's still a little homework. And so I sent them to extra math classes, right? And it's like, there was this cycle, right? Of like, and then, you know, the white parents were like, why are they sending them to math class? Now, like, to get into honors, you have to have done all these, you know, the, the, the standards are all are messed up, right? It's the, the curve is too high. And so, um, but they were like, you know, maybe we should have like intramural sports or, um, you know, we don't agree with this. You know, my kid wasn't playing sports till nine. So my kid's not stressed out. So why are you limiting, you know, the amount of work my kid can do? There was, there was discussion that never went anywhere about, um, uh, whether there should be a limit to how many AP classes a kid could take in a year, but that, that, that sort of didn't go forward. And so, you know, I think um, the district had stopped before I started this research, stopped um, naming a valedictorian. They didn't name class rank. So these were all kind of attempts to de-stress, to sort of limit competition. Um, but it was in the d- domain of academics throughout and, but it was never discussed in terms of extracurriculars. And I, you know, I think that's an interesting um, contrast. Well, I may be liberal in many ways, but one way I'm conservative is uh, I see kids 
who are doing a race, and they, they all get a medal that says number one. They're all trying to de-stress. <laughs> There's no competition. Well, guess what, people? There is competition. You know, things are not always that easy. you got to work hard. It's easy for me to say because I've been out of school a long, long time. But <laughs> a long time, believe me. Uh, the, 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 one, the, the answer is a little bit different. I think the, the real answer, I mean, the, the, the Woodcrest School, was that suburb was created in part of worry about racial integration, to put it nicely. And they tried to avoid having to deal with racial integration. But as you know, they, as you say, they, they are havens of privilege that disadvantage kids who are not even in the game. What real changes in policies? I mean, we've been talking about different like attitude changes and things, but what real policies would you suggest uh, should be changed so we don't have such a separation by class and race in America? What's a real solution? Yeah, in some ways, you know, the, these, the solutions are less about education and more about, like, municipal policy. Like, yes. you know, we need to end these, like, you know, laws that prevent building multifamily housing. Some of these places exactly. have ordinances that only allow single-family housing that only allow, you know, a certain, they have a sort of minimum housing lot size that, you know, so I think we need a lot more um, mixed income housing. We need, um, uh, we need to sort of create opportunities for people to live in different kinds of environments. Um, mm-hmm. And I think just more broadly, we need, as a society, we are, we need less inequality, right? And so um, that requires a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different kinds of policies to sort of, you know, support for unions, like right increasing the minimum wage. Like, um, you know, I think um, thinking about our tax policy at a moment when, um, you yes. know, part of what is driving inequality is the top, you know, 1%, 5%, 10% kind of pulling away um, from everyone else. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. I think, I'm excited about the ballot initiative that we have in oh, your, sorry, you're in Vermont, in Massachusetts around, you know, the kind of um, the state tax uh, for people whose incomes over a million dollars. And so I think Definitely. we can, we can think about redistribution. We can think about shoring up um, supports for working, you know, ordinary people um, that I think have just been left behind. I it's hard agree. to address it. It's hard to address this, these issues in education when the disparity is true. so large. Good point. The disparity is so large. It's true, and we're talking about a race at the top with Asian Americans and whites in pursuit of the American dream in suburban schools. Our guest has been its author, uh, Tufts University professor Natasha Warako, and it's interesting. I find how the the answer in taxing the super wealthy. All these things, you know, that's really the answer to an awful lot of little problems. It's true. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Oh, you know what? Really? Oh, let me turn this off. Survive. Grab me.
so sure.